The rise of generative AI has many of us asking it questions like, what is the meaning of life? Or what should I get my wife for her birthday? Ooh, did that already pass? Anyway, count Jean Kim among the many early adopters who find themselves fascinated by the technology's capabilities. I've been a uh, developer for my uh, entire career, even though I've mostly self-identified as an ops person, but I cannot tell you how much fun I've been having with generative AI these days. Uh, you know, whether it's the co-pilots, whether it's uh, all these, uh, whether it's just ChatGPT, I, I cannot believe how much easier it makes things uh, to build things they actually want. I have been having outrageous amounts of fun <laughs> you know, uh, building things with my kids, uh, building tools that I think would have been a little bit out of reach, um, either because I didn't have enough time or the skill. Uh, so that's something I'm just having so much fun and getting endless amounts of uh, just reward and satisfaction doing. Gene has found generative AI to be a helpful tool, not only in coding and sharpening the language of his writing, but also in learning on the go. I'm not really a, a JavaScript person, uh, so I do a lot of programming in ClojureScript, but there's all these things I don't know how to do, like uh, what is the event model? Or like what events do I need to send to a thing? So uh, I've been writing some TamperMonkey scripts for some sites for messaging where uh, instead of using their terrible interface, I get to sort of scrape all of the messages. I have my own little edit box. Uh, I can hit submit and it will populate uh, the reply form. <laughs> and it's, uh, uh, I, I would have not given my lack of experience with uh, JavaScript. I, I could not be doing that uh, without all this help. So, I mean, it's just, uh, it's been so rewarding to solve my own problems um, in a way that I think before we're just taking too much effort and uh, learning too much of stuff that I really don't want to learn. <laughs> Show me code samples. Walk me. Why does that work? Uh, what does X, Y, or Z actually do? <laughs> like your private little tutor. Of course, generative AI is not without its risks. So that means vigilance is key to avoid costly mishaps. I think we're still learning how do we use this um you know, at, at a scale. So, I mean, I think a lot of us, we're having so much fun using it for our individual hobby projects and things that we'll notice are uh, that, you know, sometimes the uh, answers of how it solves problems are wildly incorrect, <laughs> right? And so, um, and so a friend of mine, uh, they actually did a pilot at a large financial organization and uh, uh, they would they called the pilot kind of a um, inconclusive because one of the things they found was that uh, junior developers were uh, committing code and it was actually the reviewer who was catching those uh, errors. And so it was actually putting this enormous burden on the reviewer and the more senior people. And so, you know, I think what they're uh, just maybe to my interpretation of that is that, you know, I think for senior developers, uh, people with a lot of experience, this can be a, a fantastic uh, multiplier uh, for them. Um, and people with less experience, uh, you know, I think it you know, who can't distinguish kind of like a, a you know, even a, an obviously incorrect solution, uh, it might be less useful. It might be not only sort of consumes their time, but also consumes, you know, the person who's actually <laughs> supposed to be reviewing it and helping ensure the accuracy of, uh, you know, code they're putting, you know, potentially in production. This is the Ready Tesco podcast brought to you by Applause. I'm David Carty. Today's guest is generative AI whisperer and author Gene Kim. Gene is a multiple award-winning CTO and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Gene is a renowned researcher of high-performing technology organizations. And in the DevOps community, Gene is basically a household name. His latest book, which he co-authored with Steven Spear, called Wiring the Winning Organization, published a few weeks ago. The way we do work is changing, or at least it should. The organizations that can open up the flow of ideas and ease problem-solving 
are more likely to achieve success than those who cannot. Let's learn from Gene Kim and the decades of research that the authors synthesize in his latest book, How Dev and QA Organizations Can Move from the Danger Zone to the Winning Zone. Gene, congratulations on the new book. It's been great reading through it. And you use some case studies from both the public and the private sector in this book. Everything from NASA missions and plane (laughs) crashes to optimizing software design at Amazon and the release of the iPhone at Apple. Talk about running the gamut. You know you're in serious territory when you're talking about asteroid deflection, for example, right? (laughs) So, so how difficult was it for both of you to synthesize these successes and failures? And did you come to any surprising conclusions in your research? Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for bringing up the case studies. Yeah, so maybe I can start about like what was the goal of writing this book? And um, you know, just to answer that part of your question, it was the most intellectually challenging thing I've ever worked on in my career, but also one of the most rewarding. And and I think the reason is is that uh, what. The, the goal of writing the book was really to answer the question, why do organizations work in the way they do, both in the ideal and not ideal? And answer the question of like, what is in common between agile, DevOps, uh, and uh, which has been my area of passion, studying high-performing technology organizations for 24 years. Um, and, you know, but there seems to be a lot common between those fields and also the Toyota production system, lean, uh, safety culture, resilience engineering, uh, which has been so much of uh, Steve's area of study. So uh, Dr. Steven Spear is a uh, at MIT Sloan School of Business, and uh, he helped, um, you know, he's famous for writing the, 1999 Harvard Business Review uh, article called Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System, um, uh, which is actually based on his doctoral dissertation at the Harvard Business School. Um, And in part of that, uh, he actually worked on the plant floor of a tier one Toyota supplier for six months. (laughs) And so, you know, he extended the work beyond just, um, you know, the uh, high repetition work of manufacturing to engine design at Pratt and Whitney to uh, helping build a safety culture at Alcoa, and and so our conclusion after working for uh, I met him in 2014. Uh, we've been working on this for over three years, and our conclusion is that all of these things, whether it's a uh, agile DevOps, Toyota production system, team topologies, Western organizational typology model, um, safety culture, is that they are all incomplete expressions of a far greater whole. And you know, to find that there are these common mechanisms uh, that span all of those domains has been just so illuminating, so dazzling, which explains like why uh, we chose the case studies that we did is to show that uh, to the technology leader that uh, the same principles that work in DevOps uh, or actually work in manufacturing, in uh, you know, team of teams and so forth. Uh, and so that's been so, so fun. And so I think the goal is to show both technology leaders and their bosses that uh, you know there are things that we as leaders can do to make it amazing, to liberate the full creative uh, activity and problem solving capabilities of the organization. And similarly, there are things that we can do to uh, you know constrain or extinguish entirely <laughs> the full capability of the organization, like dividing dev and ops, making sure that they can only talk to each other through work tickets <laughs> and once a year when we do a deployment. So it's been uh, so satisfying uh, for it to, to work on this. 
I can still feel the stress of reading the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project, the examples that you use in there when you talk about separating organizations like that. So, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, this latest book revolves around sort of three core concepts of successful organizations, right? Uh, you mentioned them already, slowification, simplification, and amplification. I want to ask you about each of these individually, as those are the core concepts of the, of the book. But on a high level, can you sort of explain what these ideas are in the context of a software development organization. Absolutely. And so what we're saying in any domain of work, uh, in every stage of value creation, in any industry, um, yeah, there's basically, uh, imagine there's two ways of doing work. Uh, we can do it in the danger zone or the winning zone. Uh, work in the danger zone sounds like this. Uh, we have no time for planning and preparation, so we have to do all our learning in dangerous production environments that are highly complex, intertwined, highly coupled, where small problems cause global catastrophic failures, <laughs> we have no ability to undo, um, and you know that's uh, those are all characteristics of you know danger zone properties, right? And so uh, you know in the Phoenix project uh, when they were trying to learn about the application while it's being deployed <laughs> you know, in front of real life customers, right? That's danger zone uh, characteristics. The winning zone is the exact opposite of that, is that uh, we're able to do our most dangerous work, not in production, but in planning and preparation. Uh, we're able to uh, work on uh, not the entire entangled whole, but in smaller components that are contained so that small failures you know, don't cause, uh, don't ripple out and cause uh, global chaos and disruption. And more importantly, we can uh, do our work independently uh, so that, um, you know, in microservices, we know that the, the uh, it's easier to work in smaller services where we can deploy, test, and deploy values to our users independently without having to communicate, coordinate, prioritize, synchronize, deconflict with you know thousands of other people in the organization. And so, uh, you know, our conclusion um, is that whenever you see an organization transform, there are only three uh, mechanisms that work. And so, the first is uh, we have to slowify. So, we whenever you see people doing brilliant, dangerous work. You know, in highly consequential environments, uh, you know, uh, logic says that you know, for them to be doing that, they had to have invested time in planning and practice, right? Uh, because uh, and so we see this across you know, whether it's uh, Amazon game days, whether it's the uh, disaster recovery planning at Google, whether it's special forces and uh, hostage rescue operations. Um, Navy Top Gun program was essentially one uh, around slowification. You know, in the, Viet in the Vietnam War, they found that uh, they had unacceptable pilot casualties because it was too much on-the-job training, right? And so the uh, result was uh, this uh, high-intensity school to simulate, you know, combat-like situations, right, where they could develop the habits and routines and playbooks, um, you know, before uh, they entered combat. Uh, and so the second mechanism uh, is... Um, about simplification. How do you make the problem simpler to solve? So instead of the wildly complex and entwined, highly coupled system, how do you partition it? Uh, so either by making it more modular for parallel processes or things linear processes like the Toyota production system or CICD, you know, how do we um, uh, sequentialize it so that you know, we can do work in parallel too safer? Um, uh, and then the third mechanism is you know, we have to amplify signals uh, so that even weak signals of failures, you know, can be amplified and then acted upon uh, so that, you know, we can prevent disasters from happening uh, or, you know, enable quicker detection and recovery. 
Right. I'm with you. And you know what? Two thoughts. Solification, first of all, it sounds like something I'd really like to teach my two children, but that's not quite what it means, <laughs> right? Uh, what it really reminds me of is uh, it also reminds me of paying down technical debt, which is something oh, yeah. that you've also studied and spoken about, right? I mean, you've talked about this at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, except that it's applied to the actual practice of problem solving and completing work, right? So um, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, Actually, given the current- I, um- just yeah, absolutely. There. Right. So, yeah, uh, slowification, many people know it is, is, a, is not a real word in English. I mean, but so we made one up because it was so important to us is that uh, there has to be some word that signals, you know, we're going to slow down to speed up. We're going to make a short term investment for a longer term gain. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there are a lot of adages this right we got a stop sign to sharpen the saw you know slow smooth smooth is fast um so we you know, the goal was to actually sort of give it a word for this very important concept uh, and so with technical debt right the whole idea is that um you can't spend all your time doing you have to spend some time improving right the notion of improvement of daily work is as improvement as daily work itself so just to sorry you brought such a good point up i didn't want to make sure that we didn't lose it no, absolutely. And what I wanted to ask is, you know, given our current economic situation, you know, you might have some teams that are short staffed or overworked. Is it harder to win over hearts and minds to this idea right now? I mean, I know that's the area that you speak about all the time is trying to uh, influence change and, and things of that nature, right? Is it especially hard to to try to get that concept um, into the, the minds of tech, uh, technology leaders today? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, no, a- absolutely, probably, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I think when it comes down to it, you know, most software teams, the job is to deliver features that users need to either grow market share, to increase profitability, to save costs, et cetera. Um, and, and so I think that is a fact of life. And so often we find ourselves in a mode where we just got to focus on delivering those, that feature, that functionality, you know, to our customers, whether it's internal or external. But at a certain point in time, right, um, uh, you know, we have to invest in our own productivity and our own efficiencies, and uh, that is often lost. And I think many people would find it surprising, uh, you know, who were in the field 20 years ago uh, about how difficult it is to justify doing, you know, basic things like unit testing, you know, like uh, testing in general, right? And uh, yeah, I think um, yeah, I was talking to uh, a person who wrote the uh, – Don Isles. He wrote the uh, uh, lunar landing – uh, control software. And, you know, I mentioned this concept to him and you know, he, he was aghast. <laughs> he was like, what do you mean? One, testing is not someone else's job. It's not something that you can delegate. It's not something that you can prioritize away. Uh, it is a core job <laughs> of us as a, an engineering community. And so, you know, I think uh, he would, uh, people like him would find it surprising just how often we uh, deprioritize, you know, uh, things like that. Does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we talk about matters like that all the time on the podcast, the digital quality and and trying to be more efficient and trying to win over hearts and minds on the idea of investing in your quality, right? And in testing and that kind of thing. Uh, to move on to the next point, I want to be respectful of your time here. Uh, simplification uh, involves making the work, you know, a little bit more incremental, modular, linear, right? And I can feel DevOps in this particular kind of section. Um, can you tell us what this approach consists of, uh, again, particularly in a dev kind of QA uh, organization uh, perspective? So the point of simplifying is to change the nature of the problem so they are easier to solve. And so one of my favorite case studies is the uh, Amazon API project where, um, you know, they went from a situation where they were doing 
1999, hundreds of deployments per year. Uh, and it just got harder and harder. Uh, in fact, most deployments didn't finish to the point where they were only doing tens of deployments per year. And uh, there was a sort of outrageous. And the reason for that is that, you know, the, the number of product lines kept growing. Uh, you know, uh, it was involving hundreds, then thousands of engineers. And there was this ridiculous situation where uh, Werner Vogels, uh, then and current CTO of Amazon, described uh, in 2001 the Amazon digital team. So I think that was Kindle, video. Um, they... In order for them to fulfill an order, they had to provide a physical shipping address, <laughs> which is, which is, you know, uh, you know, definitely introduces friction into the uh, into the uh, ordering process. Uh, so they had to go to sixty plus teams and ask them, you know, can we please reduce the need or eliminate the need to provide a sh shipping address? To which they would respond, uh, we haven't budgeted for it. You know, so go pound sand, right? And so everyone was stuck. <laughs> and so this is what led to the two pizza team memo, the, uh, the notion that every team, uh, the only way they could communicate and coordinate was through APIs. And what that allowed was, what that as resulted was in the creating of hard modular boundaries uh, between teams so they could regain independence of action. Um, so they could all work independently of each other, right? And so the outcome of that was they were able to do in 2011, 15,000 deployments a day. By 2014, they're doing 136,000 deployments per day, right? Just showing that, you know, we're really unleashing, you know, the productivity of developers to do their work well. And then, you know, I think we can see this other um, orthogonal technique, which is a uh, linearization. So modularization is so that people can work in parallel uh, for parallel processes. Uh, linearization is what we do for sequ inherently sequential work. So like manufacturing or automated build, test, and deploy processes, right? So, um, you know, in the Phoenix project, we describe these, you know, high stakes releases where everyone has, depends on everyone else. And if anyone gets there, uh, is late, you know, they, uh, they delay the entire deployment. And so the idea is, you know, how do we, um, automate those processes and make it, uh, again, enable independence of action so that the build engineers can work over here independently of the deployment engineers over there, uh, independently of the uh, QE, you know, quality engineering people, you know, uh, in between them. So uh, I just find that uh, just amazing because it shows that there are very, um, s a small number of mechanisms um, that explain so much of, you know, the techniques we use in transformation. Oh, that's spot on. Uh, the third component, amplification, helps bring problems to light, as you mentioned. Uh, how does amplification make use of feedback to help organizations <laughs> stabilize and improve reliability? Yeah, so uh, amplification is all about you know signals getting to uh, where they're generated to where they need to go. And so uh, you know um, you know in the uh, introduction we're talking about the generative AI, where some people are finding that um, in these, these kind of early experiments, junior engineers are um, uh, generating code that was assisted by AI, but they can't recognize, you know, that is actually incorrect. And so the people who have to fix it are the senior developers, which is not, which is not tenable, right? And you know, ideally what you want is, uh, actually what we need is the feedback to go to where it's needed, which is a person who wrote the code. Um, similarly, right, uh, what we want, we find that we can solve so many of these DevOps-like problems if developers build the code and run the code themselves <laughs> and deploy themselves, right? It can't go to an operations team that's distant in the organization because the signals are lost. Um, and so I think um, really amplification is about making sure that the signals go to where they need to go and that leaders 
uh, are picking up even these weaker signals of failure so that uh, they can act, be acted upon before they cause you know something you know genuinely horrible to happen. And I think one of my favorite examples of this is uh, you know the blameless postmortem, you know the notion that you know we have a blameless postmortem that we publish to everybody. Uh, for every customer impacting outage at Google, uh, for example. My friend Randy Schaub talked about this, and he said something really magical happens is that eventually you run out of customer impacting outages to have blameless postmortems on. And so what did they do next? They had these uh, postmortems for not just customer impacting incidents, but team impacting incidents or near misses of the seven safeguards that exist to prevent a live site outage, right? Six of them failed, right? Let's, uh, let's dig into that so that we can prevent, you know, a near miss like that from happening again. I think all of these are just examples of uh, um, amplification at work. Oh, can I tell you one of my favorite stories on this? Absolutely, yeah. So one of the cases that we have is on uh, the Apple iPhone versus uh, Nokia. And so by all rights, you know, Nokia should have won, they had uh, dominant market share. They had tens of thousands of engineers. Uh, they had relationships with the uh, suppliers and telcos. And uh, what I found so surprising in researching the book was that the um, Apple iPhone initially started with a team of 10 software engineers. <laughs> and so even though when they shipped, it was now dozens of engineers, it wasn't a large team. Um, and so one, that was amazing. But two is one of my favorite book is called Transforming Nokia by Risto Slosma. And he described uh, how um, one of the pivotal moments for him as a board member of Nokia was when he learned that the build times for the Symbian OS, which Nokia was depending upon to compete against uh, the Apple iPhone, was uh, two days. <laughs> he said it felt like being hit in the head with a sledgehammer uh, because he knew that if it took two days for an engineer to learn whether the change worked or would have to be redone. Uh, you know, all the hopes, dreams, and aspirations that resided on Symbian OS was an illusion. Um, and so I got to ask him uh, in an interview, you know, how did he take something like, you know, a uh, build time of two days to be an important signal? I mean, that seems like not something that most boards talk about. And his answer just blew me away. He said, one, it wasn't that the build times took two days. He said it was the compile times that took two days, <laughs> right? The build times was actually two weeks uh, because they had distributed R&D centers. But he said, in any organization, you have the most important work being done. And you have to ask, you know, is that work easy or difficult for the person doing it? And he said when he learned that the compile times where it took two days as a former developer, he said it was impossible for anyone to do their work easily and well. And so he said there's really two um, possibilities here. One is that the senior leaders didn't know, and that's a huge problem. Or it was that the senior leaders did know, but didn't do anything about it. And he said that is an even bigger problem. <laughs> and so, you know, that's actually what led to uh, the firing of the CEO and for him to become the CEO of uh, Nokia. Anyway, so I just thought that was an amazing example of amplification of what we need from our leaders, right, to help support uh, the work, the daily work of developers. And, you know, for that matter, everyone in the engineering value stream. Gina, I saw yesterday that the DevOps Enterprise Summit is evolving a little bit, right? And it's now going to be called the Enterprise Tech Summit. Do I have that correct? Yeah, the Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit. Yeah, exactly. Technology um, Leadership Summit. Yes, yes. Um, can you explain this change a bit? And also, what does this mean for DevOps moving forward? Is it becoming more about influencing tech leaders in a direct way? Or is it just a, a different way of looking at the conference specifically? 
Oh, make no mistake. The conference is the same. And I, I think uh, this is actually for years people have been saying you know, the conference seems to be a lot more than just DevOps. And I think uh, DevOps, if you interpret it uh, very uh, in a very narrow way, you can say it's just about deployment. <laughs> and so like, uh, I think many would say, no, that's a very narrow interpretation of what DevOps really is. But uh, you know what the conference uh, has been, we've done 19 of them. We've had uh, over 1,100 talks, 1,600 leaders sharing their experience reports about adopting technology transformation in large complex organizations. And I'm so proud that we've had some of the, you know, the best known brands across every industry vertical present amazing stories of how they're helping their organizations win. And the talks are not just about dev and ops, they're about dev, QA, ops, it's about security, it's about regulators, we have auditors, we have business leaders, right? And so uh, I think the aperture of the, um, you know, conference has certainly grown since we did the first one in 2014. and. Uh, uh, you know, many people have uh, said, I, when I tell people to go, I don't call it a DevOps Enterprise Summit. Um, uh, you know, I say that it's to talk about culture, organizational design, <laughs> you know, business technology working together, you know, information security and compliance. And so after a couple of years of hearing that, <laughs> I think uh, uh, I think we finally said, all right, let's uh, bite the bullet and, you know, call it what it really is. It's a, uh, it's a conference for technology leaders, you know, to help them and their organizations win. Right, and it explores everything to psychological safety and burnout and things like that that, that impact the individual too, right? So that makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah I'm so delighted to hear that uh, people are uh, positive about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Gene, you don't strike me as a guy who likes to remain intellectually idle, and I know you just wrapped up this book and you're still discussing it, uh, but I'm curious if you have anything on the horizon that you plan to research next. Yeah, um, you know, I think the reason we wrote this book is, I think one is to kind of create this uh, mental model of, you know, what is it what, that we're actually doing? You know, when we talk about DevOps transformations or uh, high performing technology organizations. Um, and similarly, um, you know, what is it that we're doing when you talk about Toyota production system, uh, building safety cultures and so forth. And I feel like the mission ahead really is, you know, how do we create the right conditions so that business leadership and technology leadership are working, you know, hand in hand with a sense of mutual trust that they're working towards common objectives. Because I've seen so many situations where, you know, if that top leader changes in the technology organization, uh, the transformation dies, or maybe their business counterpart changes over and, you know, suddenly the level of support and the amount of air cover disappears. And so I'm hoping that by creating a common language of, you know, what does it take to create outstanding performance, that this will help accelerate, you know, technology organizations, you know, to reach their highest potential. Uh, so that's my personal selfish um, uh, objective. And so I think that kind of creates a roadmap of years of work <laughs> to see if we can expand the reach so that we're, you know, DevOpsing, you know, in more places and uh, with higher level support uh, than ever. Okay, Gene, lightning round questions here. First one, what is your definition of digital quality? Definition of digital quality is uh, we are doing all the things in our work so that we delight the customer, regardless of who the customer is, internal or external. Gene, what is one software testing trend that you find promising? Oh, my gosh. I love uh, the shift from uh, highly expensive integration testing to shifting it all the way left so that developers are getting daily feedback, <laughs> daily minute-by-minute minute feedback on their work, you know, and they're getting feedback within seconds, worst-case minutes, but not hours, weeks, months, or quarters. 
What is your favorite app to use in your downtime? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I love this app called Feedly. It's just um, there's certain writers and uh, sites that I just love reading so much. I don't want to miss any one of them. And it's just uh, my favorite app for just uh, um, reading and learning. I've used it for almost a decade. And what is something that you are hopeful for? Oh, I love – I'm actually loving Generative AI. In fact, something I'm actually using a lot is uh, the chat GPT app with the voice interface. Someone said people are spending like hours talking to it. I'm like, what? <laughs> but I find myself in a – while picking up my kids, I'm like, can you teach me about parsing uh, uh, CSS selectors in JavaScript? And uh, next thing I know, I'm 25 minutes in. Uh, because my questions are like, show me how to do that in JavaScript. Teach me what a CSS selector is. <laughs> you know, all these things. Uh, it's been super, uh, a very fun learning tool. Well, Gene, this has been a lot of fun. You always bring such uh, interesting information and perspectives to the table. Congratulations on the new book. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me here and continued success on uh, the outstanding podcast. That was Gene Kim. You can find his latest book, Wiring the Winning Organization, which he wrote with Stephen J. Spear, in our podcast notes. You can also find Gene's latest research videos, podcasts, and resources at itrevolution.com. Thank you once again to our producers, Joe Stella and Sam Susala, and our creative team, including Megan Golick and Carly Searles. Subscribe, drop a comment, leave a review, or let us know what you think about the podcast by emailing at podcasts at applause.com. See you on the next one.